So I think one of my favorite coffee travel experiences was back in 2019 when I was traveling around Indonesia. You know, I had just arrived in Bali, beautiful island, <laughs> which is like a paradise. And of course, they do grow coffee there, but uh, I'd always been intrigued by the island of Sulawesi and specifically the growing region of Toraja. So Sulawesi is uh, about an hour north of Bali by by plane. And uh, I had tried coffee from there during past trips to Indonesia. And it's just so different from what people might expect from a stereotypical Indonesian coffee, at least in my first first impressions. Um, you know, often people, at least in the West, where I'm from, Canada, in, and also Europe, United States, uh, we taste a lot of coffee from North Sumatra, or maybe, uh, you know, the, specifically regions of Aceh, or even uh, West Java. I'm not necessarily going to describe it. I don't want to bias you, but the point is that Indonesia is a huge island country and there are so many other regions, uh, kind of like hidden gems. And anyways, after a, a one hour flight from the Bali airport, arriving in Makassar, which is on the south of Sulawesi Island, that's where the airport is. And uh, my good friend and fellow photographer, coffee nerd, Dewi, she would be my in with the locals up in Toraja because uh, she kind of knew the lay of the land. She had been there before. And so after an eight hour overnight bus and then sourcing some, some motorbikes on the ground, we rode up the mountains for another hour or two. And to make a long story short, by the time we were in, in the Toraja region, we, we found ourselves finally on a forest of coffee trees, among many other types of trees and uh, fruit species, sitting with the coffee farmer and a local roaster who had come with us and making a nomadic brew together. So it was just a magical moment. Of course, I can't make you feel how I felt in that moment. Uh, all I can say is, for me, this is really what it's what it's all about. In some small way, I think it makes everything, all the weird things that we do as coffee people, coffee lovers, in the nitty gritty of the industry. I don't know. I, just, I feel like it just makes it all worth it. So that's just one coffee story that kind of came to my mind as one of my maybe mo most impactful. You know, we got to actually interview the the farmer there who probably never had that chance before and he didn't speak English, but um, we, we got a translator and it was really cool to hear his, his passion and his craft for, for growing coffee up in this region of Indonesia. So uh, welcome back to another episode of the Nomad Barista Podcast. I'm your host, Brody Vissers, and normally I seek out coffee professionals from around the world who have really paved their own path, you know, nailed their niche, designed their own lifestyle around what they love, specifically with coffee, but today I've decided to mix it up a bit. I don't have a guest, uh, but I figured now's as good a time as any to share a little bit more about myself and specifically some of the coffee adventures around the world that I've done and, and what I've learned along the way from the different types of coffee cultures, you know, uh, in, in countries all over the globe. Right now, I'm actually in Peru on a sourcing trip with Coffee Libre. We just, we just wrapped that up, but I was filming the experience because it's you know we gotta we gotta share share what's going on in the coffee industry with people who are drinking it who are kind of um you know bridging that gap between those who are making it all happen producing it and uh, really at the at the core of of this industry in a lot of ways and sharing that with the other side which are also at the core because if if we don't have people drinking coffee then we don't have people uh buying coffee and the, the coffee producers uh, 
don't have anyone to serve their coffee to. So that's what we're doing here in Peru. I'm, I'm in Lima, so you might hear some car horns in the background. Um, but I want to share today a little bit of my insights and also some thoughts that I've been having about coffee tourism specifically and, and coffee travel and and what that looks like and and where I see it potentially going in the in the near future. Um, so, you know, th this year I've done a lot of travels and I wanted to share a few of those stories with you. Hopefully they can um, hopefully they can kind of inspire you and give you a bit of more perspective on on what I do, but also, you know, what's possible in the world of coffee travel and uh, going out and seeking new uh, adventures and gaining different perspectives. But maybe, you know, maybe you work in the industry as a, as a coffee roaster or a barista, or you're just someone who's, who's interested in coffee or loves coffee and want to integrate it a little bit more into your, into your travel lifestyle. So um, yeah, I, I kind of, this year I would say I circumnavigated the globe maybe for the third time um, in my life, but, uh, it's kind of a silly metric. doesn't really mean anything, but I say all this to hopefully encourage anyone listening that pursuing your dream career or designing your dream lifestyle, whether it's in coffee or something else, I really believe is possible. Uh, for you, it might not necessarily involve travel, filmmaking, or even coffee, as I mentioned, but I use this as an example because that was my dream and it is, is my dream. And I can't help to reflect and remind myself that uh, I am living the dream. And, and I hope that you can too. Uh, I really I make this podcast to, to hopefully inspire you through conversations. And in this case today, uh, just a little bit of my own reflection. So moving on, global coffee culture, coffee tourism, where do we start? Uh, it's funny because I actually have a Google alert for every time the words coffee tourism in quotes gets mentioned online, or at least, you know, it's, it's written into an article or something like that. So I don't get these alerts as frequent as I might expect or might hope, but uh, I'm always super intrigued for where it might go or what people are talking about. So that's something uh, that I wanted to share a little bit about as well, and, and also some of the implications. So if you want to know uh, about coffee tourism, of course, you can just type it in on Google uh, within, within quotes, but also you could set a Google alert uh, because I, can, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, so this year, just to give you a bit of background or perspective on, on what I've been up to this year with, with my coffee travels, I started my journeys in Istanbul, um, in January of 2023 and jumped on over to Dubai for a coffee festival, the world of coffee Dubai. And then, uh, later on in March, actually went to Honduras and Nicaragua to shoot some coffee farms again with Coffee Libre. Uh, who's been working with producers there for a very, very long time. So it was great to to do some interviews, to get their point of view, to get their perspective, to be able to tell their stories and and bring uh, bridge that gap again, as I mentioned. So that was great. Uh, Central America, my first time there. And then I finally, uh, later on, after coming back to Barcelona, where I live, I set out on a round, round the world trip uh, to first to China, then to Korea, then the US, Canada, and then down to Brazil and Colombia to finally make my way back to Barcelona in, uh, in mid-August of this year. So uh, what can we discuss? Maybe what are some of the main differences between the coffee cultures in each of these places? Um, and because it's fresh in my mind and, and you know, I think it gives a pretty broad spectrum of um, different types of coffee cultures hitting you know, at least 
four different continents at this point. I didn't, I didn't get to Africa yet. Um, but uh, I want to explain what you might be able to expect in going to these cultures and what coffee tourism might actually look like. But before we get into that, let's introduce our main sponsor for this podcast, Wakako. If you've been listening for any amount of time or been following some of my coffee journeys and adventures online, on Instagram, on YouTube, you'll know that uh, Wakako, uh, I, I always bring Wakako gear with me because it's, uh, it's kind of for me the one-stop shop for for nomadic brewing um you know now they've got pretty much every every coffee brewing product that you could that you could want and it's all hand powered right so except for the scale which uh you kind of need batteries for that but we've got a, a hand grinder we've got um espresso machines that fit in the palm of your hand so you can make really cafe quality uh espresso with the pico presso or the nano presso mini presso they've got a few different models there and i was when i was in china as i mentioned uh, that was my first stop on the on the tour uh earlier this year i went to the wakako factory and kind of got a sense of uh what goes on behind the scenes and got to really meet the whole team uh in person after years of of communicating so i say all that because uh you know i do bring wakako gear everywhere that i go and, and travel and i think that What's really unique about it, aside from just brewing coffee in maybe your Airbnb or your hotel, is being able to actually bring, uh, let's say specifically espresso, to coffee producers who who may have never had their own coffee or, or any coffee in the form of espresso. It's ch starting to change a lot now um, as as more coffee producers are able to get a little bit more equipment or their their facilities are a little bit more developed, but um, that's one thing that I thought has all, I've always thought was really cool is be able to bring all the gear you need to make uh, to make an espresso. <laughs> Sorry for the horns honking outside. Peru is a uh, Lima. It's a very busy busy city, but that's that's where we are. We are we're out here exploring coffee around the world. So if you want to check out Wakako, link is in the in the description here. Uh, feel free to go check that out and pick up your own Wakako gear if you like to, to travel and make coffee along the way. But let's start with Turkey here. This is my first time going to, to Turkey after many years of, of really wanting to go, um, specifically to Istanbul. And, and this trip, I only made it to, to Istanbul, um, but it was, it was enough to fill, fill my time there for about five days on my way to, to Dubai. So basically, you know, I really felt like going back to the source uh, as many of you may know, uh, Turkish coffee is obviously very famous. It's uh, a very historical, it's a very, um, it's a very old way of making coffee. And so even though I had tried, uh, tried it myself in many cafes around the world that served, you could call it Turkish coffee, but there's many countries that serve coffee in that same style, uh, with the Jezve or, uh, in Greek it would be the Ibrik. And, um, and so I really liked you know, that, that way of serving coffee, I thought it was very rustic, but going back to the source, it, it's not really about the coffee bean, the green bean itself. It's not a coffee origin like some of the other places, but uh, it's really in some ways this, the, the origin of drinking and brewing coffee as a, as a sort of a coffee culture or a cafe culture. So during the Ottoman Empire, um, this started to become uh, very popular. I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of the of the history here, I will do that maybe in another podcast, but essentially, you know, back in the 1600s, 1700s, it really started to take off as a, 
as a drink. Um, you know, we've spoken on on other videos and and some of my other content about the origin of coffee itself, coming from you know the bean being discovered in in Ethiopia or the or the plant itself, and then migrating to to Yemen. But it was really during this time in the Ottoman Empire that it became popular to gather around coffee uh, as a as a drink and as a as a culture and as a way to to spread ideas and and some at some instances even being banned for that very idea right it can be a little bit uh, a little bit dangerous uh, so to speak on a, on a political level or or even um, you know creative level if you think of uh, if we can say dangerous creativity but um, but it's it's obviously made a huge impact on the rest of the world and um, you know I feel like it, on this trip to Istanbul I got to see how Je the Jezva meets the modern ways of, of brewing coffee. So maybe, you know, the, the specialty coffee or even the intermediary between traditional coffee brewing and, you know, more modern, you know, we could even talk about Starbucks and, and the espresso machine culture. So yeah, it was really interesting to see that, um, that intersection of the traditional way of brewing coffee and the modern way. But what I appreciated was actually a lot of shops still sticking true to that traditional way of brewing coffee, even the specialty coffee uh, shops. So I got to visit a few different cafes around the city, uh, mostly focusing on the specialty, but even a, um, a few of the older, the older cafes that were really uh, influential um, and critical into starting this coffee movement. So there was one in particular that I, I knew I had to pop by. Everyone was telling me, oh, you're going to Istanbul. You need to, you need to go check out this uh, coffee roasting company called Kurukavaji Mehmet Efendi. Um, so Mehmet Efendi is a name and Kurukavaji is a, essentially like a coffee roaster. Um, but this company is, uh, is 150 years old and they were the first in Istanbul or, or even in Turkey to start roasting and grinding coffee beans to be sold uh, for for human consumption in the home. So before that, what was very interesting is that um, the it was mostly just green coffee that was being imported, right? So it was uh, being grown other places, a lot in Yemen, around uh, and of course in Ethiopia and and uh, some other places. It was being imported into Turkey, but people had to roast their own green bean at that time. So Kurukavaji Mehmet Efendi kind of pioneered the idea of. Hey, let's let's roast this up and grind it because we've got roasters, we've got grinders. Not everyone has all that equipment, and let's sell it to to the people in in the very sort of typical Turkish fine grind format. So, so that was very interesting to see, you know, how this company has um, has pervaded over the years, and you know, hope to hope to go visit them again and and tell a little bit more of not only their story but how how Turkish coffee culture has really made such an impact on. Uh, on global coffee culture, you know, and, and that act of sitting together in a, in a coffee house, you know, it kind of started there. Uh, and from what I've heard, it was interesting that shortly after that, this is not, not going to be a whole uh, history of coffee podcast episode, but, um, but just to lightly touch on it, what I thought was interesting is that some of the first people to set up cafes in Europe, so after, after the, you know, the Ottoman Empire, Middle East uh, is kind of where coffee drinking culture started. And then the next place was really uh, around Europe, right? So um, it was actually the first few coffee houses, whether it's in, in London, in Paris, and Vienna, were started by 
Armenians, uh, surprisingly enough. This is what I've heard. If, if I'm wrong, uh, feel free to send me a message and, and correct me. But uh, it was a few Armenians who took this Turkish Ottoman Empire uh, coffee drinking approach and set up coffee houses around Europe. So anyways, I, I have a lot more research to do in that area. I do not claim to to know the or memorize the full history, but it is very interesting. And, uh, and it was a great, great time to explore uh, Turkish coffee drinking culture. And of course, the food is amazing, and uh, the city itself has a lot of, lot, a lot of history. Uh, very beautiful. Met with some some really cool people, really passionate about coffee, especially coffee. I met with uh, um, an actual Turkish coffee, or you could say Jezve Ibrik barista champion, so uh, up Turkey. Um, and so that was really nice. His name was Denis Tombologlu, and I made a video with him on how to brew the best Turkish coffee with his method so there's 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 a few different styles and methods and and um brewing strategies let's call it of course you can go check that video out on youtube but just going around and, and tasting these coffees was just was just uh really eye-opening for me it was it was great to go back to the source so turkey highly recommend um and if you go try the traditional turkish coffee try it without sugar try it with sugar try the the specialty coffee shops which are bringing in coffee from around the world and doing your typical pour overs and your your espressos and uh you know cappuccinos and latte art and all that kind of thing um, but try a little bit of both so that's istanbul hope to go back soon then i jumped over to dubai as i mentioned the united arab emirates uh they were hosting the world of coffee in dubai uh so world of coffee if you're not familiar it's a it's a reoccurring yearly uh event festival we could call it um or exhibition uh, that usually takes place in Europe, but um, but you know the Middle East is a little bit further away, so they decided to do their own edition and had people come all, uh, from all around the Middle East to to see it and to participate in coffee roasters. Even as far as India, actually, I was I was surprised to to see some some really cool alternative uh, Indian coffee roasters, especially coffee roasters bringing Indian coffee. So trying a bunch of different different coffees there. But yeah, Dubai was a was definitely a huge compliment to to that trip to the Middle East and to see a little bit more behind the scenes. So I don't think Dubai itself is specifically representative of, um, you know, the Middle Eastern coffee drinking culture, especially the traditional one. But obviously it was a very different vibe than than Istanbul. If anyone's been to Dubai, of course, many of you have seen photos and the, the, the Burj Khalifa and, um, you know, the beautiful, extravagant cafes uh, there around the city. So I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit first. The, that was probably what blew me away the most, aside from seeing all the tall buildings and extreme architecture. And, you know, you kind of have to drive everywhere as opposed to Istanbul. I felt like I could either walk or take the take the the rail. But uh, in Dubai, it's, it's really kind of a driving city. I was fortunate to be there in January, so it wasn't too hot. But I heard that in the, in the summertime, it can get extremely hot. So I was lucky there, but um, after the festival, my goal was kind of to visit some of these cafes, these very illustrious specialty coffee shops um, around the city that I had seen and, and done a little bit of research on. But my goal was to make a little bit of a YouTube video to explore and, and explain what the Dubai or the Emirati uh, coffee culture is like in the modern sense, right? So really beautiful cafes. There's a few recognizable name brands, maybe, or no, name brands, a cafe, chain cafes that you might know. Aside from Starbucks, of course, there was 
um, Arabica. So the you know some some know it as percent Arabica. So it's a very minimalist, uh, originally Japanese uh, chain that has since expanded around Asia and the Middle East and, and even into Europe. So there's a lot of beautiful cafes by them, but also on a smaller scale, more local, there was a, there was one simply called the Espresso Lab. And um, that one, I, I tried some really amazing uh, espressos, as you might expect, but also pour overs um, in this district called the Dubai Design District or D3. So really cool little space. Uh, it's uh, well, it's kind of like a little neighborhood where there's a lot of design and innovation and startup uh, incubator type culture, uh, design studios, but of course, uh, some great cafes and restaurants. So uh, the Espresso Lab was definitely a go to for me, but there's a few more, uh, even the barn. Actually, I was I was interested to go check out the barn coffee roasters. If you're familiar, they're from Berlin originally, um, but they do have now a location in uh, in Dubai and I think a few other cities around the world. So. It was interesting to see that kind of like European uh, or at least Berliner approach to, to specialty coffee there in Dubai. But let's take a step back. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the the history or the coffee history in in Dubai, but also United Arab Emirates and, and of course, Saudi Arabia and, and um, you know, a lot of these, the Arab world is they would they would obviously not use espresso machines back in the day. Um, and what I've, what I've got, what I had, what I got to experience while I was there was the, the culture of using the dalla. So the dalla is, um, is like basically a big metal coffee pot with a, with a beaked spout. It's very recognizable. It's a, it's a, you know, you, you would make Arabic coffee or, uh, yeah, that's basically what it's called Arabic coffee. Um, and this would be completely different than, than actually the Turkish coffee. So in a lot of the, these countries in, in the Middle East, they will, they will still use the, the Turkish coffee method, but that is very different than the Arabic coffee method. So the Arabic coffee in this sort of, uh, could be stainless steel, very shiny, um, shiny pot. Basically you just, you take the, the coffee and they roast it very, very light. I noticed they, they roasted it. It was almost like yellow looking, not green, but not brown. And then once that's ground up and mixed with a, a few spices, maybe some cardamom is a, is a typical one. And then depending on the recipe, a few other ones. And then they would heat that. Uh, they would actually heat boil water in a different spouted pot and then put the coffee grounds and spices into the second spouted pot and pour the boiling water over top uh, or inside, I guess, to to brew for a while, and uh, that would sit there and, and brew and and uh, extract the coffee in a very unique way. It was almost like a a tea, right? Because it's not quite roasted, caramelized in the in the way that that you might expect, um, you know, black coffee. But all those mixed together, you know, is a very um, very elaborated ceremonial approach. But I really I really appreciated it because it was uh, it's a very unique flavor. It's very uh, uh, low in bitterness, but also low in acidity. It's very smooth. And of course, with the spices, it's, uh, it's a nice, nice treat. So you could either do that in a, in a traditional shop, Dubai, and it's a little bit harder to find, but there were even, uh, experiences where you could go and, and have that coffee experience out in the middle of the desert. So, um, obviously it, that's a little bit more of a trek, but you know, that's how we do things here. <laughs> The Nomad Barista, and, and uh, hopefully you're the same. So if you ever get get a chance to to do that coffee experience in the desert, you know, set up on the 
on the carpets and you have to drive a four wheel. Well, you don't have to drive. They will drive you in a, in a four, four wheel vehicle that goes through the dunes. And then you can go and uh, try this, this desert coffee experience with the Dalla. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, they also have a really, a really strong, uh, specialty coffee approach in Dubai. And, um, you know, I think th this, it's a little bit of a mix of what I find interesting about Middle Eastern coffee. And, and definitely if you, if you haven't been, uh, make your way there eventually to any of, any of the cities, whether it's, it's Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi, or even, um, Riyadh in, in Saudi Arabia or, uh, Qatar that there's so many countries that, uh, have this growing coffee culture in the Middle East. And what I find very interesting is that even historically in the past, coffee really was the wine of the of this area right the wine uh, of the arabs and travelers from from different parts of the world and, and europe specifically would come over and, and and recognize wow they're drinking this kind of very black very dark uh, a lot of times bitter that was that was the wine because of course in many of these countries uh, in muslim tradition they don't drink alcohol and so while the europeans were drinking uh, uh alcohol every day and specifically because a lot of the time the water wasn't uh wasn't sanitary enough. And so they were, you know, kind of maybe drinking a light cider, a light beer to, uh, to stay safe, ironically. Um, but in the Middle East, they were, they were boiling water and they were making coffee and they were sanitizing the water by, by boiling it. So it was very interesting to, to see that uh, Middle Eastern coffee culture and, and how people really put a lot more, in my opinion, more effort into the development of these beautiful cafes, maybe in a similar way that in other parts of the world, you might put businesses might put a lot more elaborated um, creativity into developing bars and restaurants and, you know, clubs, nightclubs, cocktail bars. Well, those are not the way people in the Middle East are, are going and spending their time, right? They're going to to drink coffee and, and these places are, are very beautiful. And there's a lot of, uh, let's say there's a lot of investment in them in a majority of them, but that's makes sense because that's where they want to go and um, you know, try the best quality of coffee that they can and, and be in a beautiful environment. So definitely worth going to check out, um, you know, different approach, maybe a slightly different approach to coffee than, than what you might be used to, depending on where you are in the world. But let's, uh, let's jump to what's next, you know, came back to, to Barcelona and I can actually, for those of you who are not based in, in Spain or, or even in Europe, you know, I can talk a little bit about the, the European or specifically Spanish coffee culture and how it differs, at least traditionally, from the from the way that maybe Western coffee culture, what I grew up with in Canada, as being um, you know typical coffee culture. So, uh, in in Europe, of course, espresso machines, especially in the in the southern part of Europe, are much more common. In fact, if you go to Spain and uh, and you just ask for coffee, un café, that just means an espresso. You will, if you want it, if you wanted something a little bit more like a filter coffee or even an Americano, you have to make that distinction because, uh, you know, it, it would be the same, the same thing in, in Italy, of course, the espresso or cafe. Um, and so you might say in Spain, un cafe solo, which is just coffee, or you may, you might say cafe con leche, right? Of course, uh, a cappuccino or, or a cafe latte. So that's the, that's the the typical coffee drinking culture there. But of course there's many specialty coffee shops that are, that are serving a little bit of both. Um, but of course, because 
many of the locals will be looking for that typical espresso or espresso with milk. Um, that's kind of like the go-to go-to approach. But in Barcelona, over the last few years, in my observations, there's been a lot of um, a lot of attention to making uh, pour-overs, making batch brew, and this this to me is an interesting part of the distinction between uh, you know Europe's development in specialty coffee versus North America's uh, development is because. You know, for me, growing up in Canada, batch brew was that was normal. You know, you go to you go to Tim Hortons, you go to um, Starbucks, and they're going to serve you filter coffee. It wasn't until later when Starbucks started introducing espresso machines that that started to become a little bit more uh, commonplace. But originally, especially with Tim Hortons in Canada, it was just um, you know batch brew, filter coffee, drip coffee, and so espresso. When that came in, started to become this new exciting way of drinking. Uh, drinking coffee and you know, more of the European approach, even before specialty coffee, you know, just having an espresso or cafe latte Americano. Whereas in, at least in my experience in Spain, it's almost the opposite, right? Because espresso has been around since, since the beginning or, you know, at least for a very reasonable amount of time, that's how they're used to drinking uh, coffee today. And so uh, having batch brew is a completely foreign concept. In fact, it would you would basically only find batch brew in a specialty coffee shop and much smaller machines because not, not many people are ordering them um, or, or if they do choose to make a, a pour over method or some sort of brew, um, you know, hand brew method on the spot, you know, because there's, there's much fewer people ordering uh, filter coffee or drip coffee. So that's kind of interesting uh, for people in, involved in specialty coffee in Southern Europe, at least, you know, having a filter coffee uh, is a little bit more exotic but it's also interesting too because uh in my experience maybe serving filter coffee to a spanish person who has never had it before they might see it as very watery they might see it as this is almost like a tea or this is this is not really like a coffee because what they're used to in uh in coffee is is espresso so it, it takes a little bit of time for all of us to adjust to new to new ways of drinking coffee but that's what i can speak to in terms of you know being back in in barcelona specifically in in europe I'm not going to cover all the nuances uh, around different places in Europe in this episode, but I do know, of course, is, is if you go further further north, uh, especially into Scandinavia and, of course, the UK, uh, filter coffee and drip coffee is, again, um, I would say equally as commonplace or much more common. Uh, and I know fin- Finland is always known as being the country that drinks the most coffee per capita. Um, and then that is, that would be drip coffee. So, um, I can, can see why those, uh, long, cold winter, uh, winter days and very dark, you need that coffee to, to pick you up in the morning or get you through the day. But anyways, uh, we can cover Scandinavia in another episode. I would love to do that. But moving on, uh, was in March in ed- end of February. So not too, not too far after I got back from, from my trip that I went back to, well, I went for my first time to Central America. So Honduras uh, to Nicaragua, again, I was with Coffee Libre, which is a Korean coffee importer, coffee brand, working with the, with the founder, working with the green buyer, Pil, and he, he's been going back to these coffee origins for, for a very long time, for at least, I don't know, seven, eight years, he's been going to uh, many countries, but specifically Honduras, Nicaragua, and he actually has a farm called Finca Libre in Nicaragua. So it was just really cool to, to see, you know, what the coffee growing, um, you know, coffee growing culture or the industry there in 
in uh, in Central America, or at least you know this is somewhat of a representation. Though I know each of the each of the countries in Central America are slightly different, but yeah, Honduras, um, a lot of small, sort of medium sized farms, farms where they might be growing a few different varieties, uh, whether it's Tipica or Caturra or uh, some Bourbon, uh, some even had some geisha. Yeah, it was it was really great to see to see those farms in person. But in terms of the coffee drinking culture, there was, in my opinion, a little bit more of a modern approach. We went to cafes that had espresso machines that they were making, you know, the lattes and and the cappuccinos, the espressos, as normal. But I didn't I didn't actually go to any major cities, so I can't tell you what the what the specialty coffee scene is like in those countries, though I do know that it is it is growing. It is growing over the years. There's been a lot more exposure to drinking specialty coffee within these producing countries specifically. Um, so that's kind of exciting uh, to hear and to, to experience is that the historically, you know, a lot of these producing countries would be exporting pretty much either a majority of their coffee or at least the best of their coffee. And so what's left over obviously is... Um, is either the second grade or you know uh, the the lowest pickings, and often just converted into instant coffee, right? So it was unfortunate that um, you know the, some some of these amazing coffee producing countries were not able to really witness and experience their own their own coffee in the way that it's be that it would that it was being uh, drunk and then continues to be uh, in these uh, more what we would call consuming countries. So. Now we're seeing a little bit more of that blend. We went to even just some really small towns close to the coffee farms and we're able to find some some really nice, again, countryside, very rustic, but um, still specialty coffee uh, spaces and cafes that were serving espresso as well as filter. So, uh, and that coffee was great. And you know, you could tell that there was, there was care and dedication put into it. So that's what I loved to see in, in uh, Honduras and, and Nicaragua. And yeah, I think it's going to continue to grow. For now, what we'll do is uh, jump forward to a little bit further. I went back to Barcelona, but in uh, in June, as I mentioned, I did go to uh, to Asia. So I went to China. Let's talk about Chinese coffee culture. Uh, some of you who have been following along may know that I used to live in China and I've been back many times over the years. Um, you know, when I first moved to China in 2012, it was nothing to do with coffee, but I would say that that was the moment that I that I first got exposed to the idea of potentially getting into coffee. Um, of course, uh, I grew up around coffee, but I never really drank it or I didn't really care that much about it until I moved to Yunnan um, and that is the coffee growing region of China. And so I got exposed to more of the direct connection that really attracted me to the idea of of drinking coffee and tasting, trying to taste the the nuances and the differences. Of course, during that time, there wasn't it. It definitely wasn't as uh, as elaborated or um, you know detailed as it is today, uh, especially in in Kunming, which is the capital of Yunnan. But uh, it was my starting place, right? So I started to to drink coffee there, and then when I moved back to Canada, took it upon myself to to continue. I I would say I dove right in. Uh, but it's been a long journey. So um, I'll talk about that story. I'll share that story maybe another time. But on, on this trip specifically, I went straight to uh, Shanghai. So there was a there's a big festival expo uh, called Hotel X in Shanghai every year. And it's basically where uh, hospitality businesses come together. But of course, there's a there's a very, very big uh, coffee section 
with uh, coffee roasters from all over the country. Really, really uh, amazing to see how how much it's been growing and how much it's been expanding over the years. Of course, I think for a lot of people, especially if you don't have much exposure to to Chinese culture, you might imagine that uh, you know it wouldn't be the first place that comes to mind when you when you think of coffee drinkers or coffee culture, because of course they have a history of drinking tea and they have some of the best teas in the world. And, and I also, you know, really got a great exposure to tea uh, when I was living there in Yunnan. They grow most of the tea. I'm not, I'm, I, don't know the, I don't know the distribution, but they grow a lot of tea in Yunnan, uh, green tea and turn it into puar tea as well, if you've never heard of it. Uh, one of my favorites, not for everyone. That is something that's happening in China now. It's really increasing in the coffee consumption, uh, you know, with globalization and exposure to to different different drinks. But I think you know it's something that um, that's really growing, and you could you could tell by going to this uh, expo that there's a lot of coffee roasters who are you know getting really really creative with the packaging. I, I, you know, I've, I didn't try all the coffees obviously, but one thing you can notice is the packaging and the types of bags and boxes and cans and just objects that you would never well maybe if you got really creative you can imagine uh, them being a vessel for roasted coffee beans but something we don't see as much in the in, in europe where i live or in north america where i where i grew up so yeah really interesting to see all these different coffee roasters what i've observed about the coffee drinking especially coffee drinking tendency in china is that the the consumers who are taking the taking the next step to to get further into specialty coffee i can i can tell that they're really they're curious about the different styles of more fermented coffees um of course this is just this is not a general rule but this is this is a tendency that i've a trend i would say that i've picked up on is that um in china it's it's more popular now to to find these uh, coffees that you might attribute to be like uh, anaerobic fermentation um, or carbonic maceration or, or even a natural coffee that's gone through some sort of, um, you know, extended fermentation. Uh, but then, of course, very nice washed coffees, some really nice expensive geishas and um, different types of high-end coffees. And, and I can understand why uh, that is. Of course, it, in Chinese food in general, there's a lot of different types of experimentation, a lot of really uh, crazy flavors and, and approaches to, to cooking. So that, that makes sense to me, but also the, uh, going back to the tea drinking culture, what I find very interesting is there's, there's some parallels there in terms of, you know, how, how the, how Chinese people have approached drinking tea for thousands of years, which is fascinating. Um, and the, the price and the value that they place on some really high end teas. So that's something to keep in mind, and that's something very curious and almost obvious to me because, you know, we, I say we, I live in, in Europe, as I mentioned, and, and wine, I would say, has that level of um, not only sophistication, but value put on it, right? So we've got, we've, you can buy really low quality wine and, and very cheap wine, but then you can also buy, you know, it's, it's almost like there's no, there's no ceiling in, in terms of how much you can spend on on a nice wine, right? Whereas with coffee, for the average person, there's really a, a quite a short range. You know, whether you're buying a bag of coffee from the supermarket, and maybe you're going to go, you're getting now you're getting into specialty coffee, and you're going to your local roaster, and you're you're spending maybe double, triple, but that's still it's still within sort of a reasonably low price range. Now, for people who are not used to it, it might seem extremely expensive, but you know, if we're going to talk in in dollars or euros. 
you you might on the upper end pay uh, 20 euros for for like a 250 gram bag of coffee, right? Now that might seem expensive, but when you compare it to wine, it's uh, you, you could you could definitely spot a few bottles of wine that are way more expensive for that and give you uh, ultimately much less liquid. So it's interesting to me. And then going back to China, there's this culture of very, very high-end teas, right? So it doesn't have to be, for them, it doesn't have to be alcoholic in order for it to have value. Um, so you can buy, you know, some aged teas that have been aging for five to 10 years, or you know, just really high quality green tea or white tea or oolong and you know, these can go very high in price. And, and the the approach to making tea, I think really has carried over to the approach of making coffee. Because if you've ever seen a Chinese tea ceremony, uh, the Gong Fu Cha, so it's actually Kung Fu tea. Um, and so Kung Fu in this case doesn't necessarily relate to the martial art of Kung Fu in terms of fighting, let's say, but it is still a martial art in terms of the mentality, right? So Kung Fu being, um, more of like a mindful practice, right? It's more of that slowing down and doing something with purpose and doing something with intention that very much goes into the Gong Fu tea, Gong Fu cha with, um, you know, the, the wooden tables and the little figurines that you might pour water over and rinsing the tea and having uh, a few different pours of the same tea leaf and then washing it again and, and then moving on to the next one and drinking it out of very small little teacups so I think that approach, which is more ancient uh, in nature in, in China, has carried over to the approach of really appreciating fine coffees, right? And uh, bringing in some different coffees from around the world, sometimes, you know, a little bit more on the fermented side, sometimes a little bit more on the washed or like um, clear, bright, uh, bright flavors. And so I find that very interesting. Um, so that's what I, that, that's what I witnessed at the, uh, the Hotel X show and i was actually there for wakako so uh, that was a that was a trade show that that they were present at had a really nice booth there so they were showing off their their coffee gear i was there for the trade show and and to try a few of few different coffees there uh after that I actually went to the wakako factory as i mentioned and that was in in guangdong a little bit further away closer to to hong kong i can't really comment i'm not going to necessarily talk about the the differences between shanghai and, and guangdong for specialty coffee because it's it's uh, very much the same, but that was that trip was for for Wokako to do a little bit of some filming there and and to to make some content. So that was China, a place that I that I enjoy going back to from time to time and and seeing how the culture is growing and evolving. And um, yeah, I guess what's interesting with China compared to some of the other countries that we spoke about is they don't necessarily have a traditional way of of brewing coffee. So it's it's almost like a, a fresh approach, right? But a, an approach that's been influenced by other styles or other appreciations, like as we mentioned with the tea and how that to me parallels our appreciation for like a fine wine in, in Europe or in other places around the world. So that is China. And then moving on, I actually went to Korea because I was already in Asia and I decided, hey, let's, let's, make, a, let's make a trip to visit Coffee Libre in Korea and do a little bit more filming there and and, um, and document a few of the, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Because I, I had traveled with Coffee Libre to a few origins now, a few years ago to India, and then this year to to Honduras and Nicaragua, as I mentioned, but uh, had not been to the, to the actual roastery and to the warehouse and so, to some of the cafes. So it was really nice to see 
the cafes around Seoul with the with the Coffee Libre brand and to be able to go to the roastery and to the cupping lab and to try all the all the really great high quality coffees that Pill is bringing in from around the world. Um, so that was a great trip. Korean coffee culture um, in general. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I would say it's it's to me a blend of what we've already spoken about in terms of specialty coffee. Again, with globalization, this is one of the things that it's kind of an inevitability of the, our expanding world and, and you know, finer, finer quality products, things that people are attracted to. Of course, coffee is a, a big uh, global drink. There's, <laughs> there's no stopping it. But one, uh, one thing that I've noticed is it's a little bit of a, I would say it's like an epitome of what specialty coffee global specialty coffee culture is so um one thing you'll realize walking around seoul is that there are specialty coffee shops or cafes on pretty much every corner uh some three on one corner or or three on one block and even a lot of them with their own roasters and their own roasteries and um serving their own coffee or uh or or of course buying buying from other roasters so it was just really interesting to see that uh that level of I want to say competition. It it wasn't necessarily well. I would say it was definitely saturated. But what was interesting is that even though it was saturated, there was still this culture of um, of opening new shops. Right? There's still this habit of uh, you know young entrepreneurs or, or or even maybe chain shops that are still expanding. And it's because people love drinking coffee there. They drink a lot of coffee. Like it's uh, it's incredible. And not only that, they have a very keen eye for design so that's something that i really appreciated like the cafes that uh, that i was seeing or visiting were just they were so curated they were so unique uh they were so inviting like if if you walked into a cafe and, and it wasn't for you you could walk a few blocks down down uh down and you could find one that's that resonated with you a little bit more maybe it was one that also had some some cocktails or maybe it was one that was very minimal or maybe a different one that was extremely cozy. Um, so the, just the diversity of specialty coffee shops and places to, to drink coffee is just, it's mind blowing. So that's what I loved about uh, coffee, specialty coffee culture in Seoul. I can't speak to, to other parts of Korea, though I, I do think, um, you know, there's, it translates to some of the other cities, but of course Seoul is where the majority of them are. Again, they don't really have a very traditional way of, of drinking coffee, similar to China. You know, it's more, you know, starting fresh, but they have a, you know, lo a longer history now of, of, of doing really good coffee and specialty coffee. So I would say they're, uh, they're a good example if you're looking to looking for inspiration uh, or just looking to have a great uh, coffee tourism trip, uh, put Seoul on your list. So next stop on my, on my tour specifically, of course, there's so many other things I want to say about coffee culture in, in Asia and the different uh, countries from Thailand to Japan. and But we're going to jump all the way over to the U.S. I was uh, I went to the U.S. again for uh, another film project and again another trade show with Wakako. But the two cities that I visited were, uh, were Denver and then Salt Lake City. And so those, if you have never been to, to the U.S. and you've never been to, you know, typical... American style coffee shop or Canadian style coffee shop. That's really what what I noticed while I was there. That's what I kind of let's say went back to and, and got to um, 
got to appreciate again from from fresh eyes as I I don't live in in North America anymore. So it was interesting to to come back and and have a little bit of that maybe nostalgia. Um, so yeah, great great coffee shops there, great roasters in in Denver. Of course, much more of a to go culture lineup in the, outside the cafe in the morning. Grab your to go cup, uh, head on over to work. Like this is this is to me what I would say would exemplify North American coffee culture. Um, so there's a lot more of this to go, but also people sitting in and, and having the pastries in the morning. And, you know, I think there's a, there's a real craft being put into making, making really good coffee in, uh, in the U S but specifically in, in, in my case in Denver, Salt Lake city, it's hard for me to, to expand on, on this and, and share with you some of my insights just because it's, I feel like it's closer to home for me. So it's, I don't know exactly how to express some of the uniqueness and the differences, but uh, I would say in general, you know, very cozy and, and probably what's what's unique there, the combination with, with food as well, being able to go into a coffee shop, but also get, you know, a brunch or, or a lunch, things like that. Of course that happens in Europe too, but Canada was my next stop, but I was more in the countryside. So I can't really speak too, too much about the specialty coffee scene um, around Halifax, but uh, you know, some great coffee roasters popping up there on the, on the East coast, much more culture of uh at least in this case in the countryside you know drinking coffee at home home brewing uh so maybe that's something i can talk about a little bit from my personal experience and what i've observed over the last few years uh with coffee culture in canada and i know you can translate that to to the u.s as well but one thing that's unique about canada (laughs) compared to some of the other places that i've traveled to um this year is that it's tends to get fairly cold right and so um that's for majority of the winter um, and almost half of the year, it's kind of a chilly place to be. And so as you can imagine, that would incentivize people to go into cafes and, you know, just spend a little bit more time there and, and to get cozy and, you know, maybe spend some of the darker, the darker mornings, um, you know, going to a cafe or uh, appreciating that, uh, that warm drink to, to warm you up. But the other thing that I've realized is especially in the last few years, is this focus on home brewing culture. So like brewing coffee at home, you know, you've seen it online, you've seen it on Instagram. I'm sure you follow some of the the YouTubers who are teaching how to brew better coffee at home and to, you know, which gear to pick up. So this is what's interesting is I feel like there's quite a few coffee YouTubers uh, and Instagrammers from Canada. Of course, the US too, um, but Canada teaching people how to brew better coffee at home. I saw a lot of people investing in much better equipment at home, especially now a lot of people are working remotely. So that was a, a big part of it. But I think just being a little bit more of a colder culture, uh, colder temperature, the people are not necessarily cold, maybe some of them, bringing coffee home and, and kind of putting in the effort to to make great brew for, for yourself or even for those that you're living with. Uh, is a really, really, really big part of Canadian culture. So if I'm going to make a comparison with Barcelona, there's there's not as much incentive to go out and enjoy a sunny day and go to a terrace and grab a coffee or a cappuccino with some friends because in the wintertime, it's just, it's just too cold. So people would rather stay at home and, and focus on creating almost like a little cafe experience in their own home. So that's what I've observed. That's what I find interesting in how that's that sort of at-home coffee culture is evolving. 
Uh, it's always been there for sure, but it's um, I would say now with the with the trend of of buying you know nicer equipment or you know fancy equipment and, ha and setting up your your little space at home, especially for those working working from home, um, that's a big part of Canadian and American coffee culture now. Next up, we're gonna go to Brazil. We're gonna go to Rio de Janeiro. Um, this is my first time in Brazil, and I it was almost last a last minute trip. I'm not gonna get into all the details of why I chose Brazil, but it was essentially because we were, I was planning to go to Colombia anyways, and we decided to, uh, with my partner, to go to Brazil on the way because it was a, it was a country that neither of us had been to and wanted to, to explore. So uh, really exciting to be in Rio de Janeiro, such a beautiful city, amazing place. And as you know, Brazil is a coffee producing country as well. So I, I think I was a little bit underwhelmed and I don't want this to come off as a seeming ne negative or criticism about uh, Brazilian coffee culture. But I found that in Rio, the places that, at least the places that we were staying in that were recommended to, to go spend some time were more on the, on the south uh, of the city where the beaches of Ipanema and Copacabana, very, very famous uh, neighborhoods and, and beaches, there wasn't a whole lot of coffee culture or specialty coffee culture there. In fact, I would say even just coffee culture in general, I think you, you can go to and you can find a cafe there and, and get some Paulo de Cajo and, uh, and, and an espresso or an Americano. But I didn't feel like there was a very specific traditional coffee drinking uh, approach as you might as you might expect if you were to go to Colombia which I'll talk about in, in a second uh, or even of course you know Turkey we spoke about yeah it's something I didn't observe in Rio de Janeiro if you are from Rio or even from Brazil and you want to comment on that uh, definitely feel free to send send a message um, you know because I'd love to, to talk more about Brazilian coffee drinking culture but I know as a as a really really big coffee producing country um, Brazil is producing a lot of really great coffees and many different regions. But uh, yeah, I found it in Rio, there wasn't a ton of selection of specialty coffee shops, at least in the neighborhood that we were in. And if we wanted to go to some of the ones that were recommended, it was, it was a little bit further away and, and spread out. So almost a, a very stark contrast to what I experienced being in Seoul and having specialty coffee shops on every corner. Um, in Rio, there was a few, but one that I will comment on, um, which I find also to be an interesting business case, is um, is a it's a cafe called The Coffee. It's actually a chain that started in in Brazil, didn't start in, in uh, Rio de Janeiro, but actually started in a, in a smaller city called Curitiba. Um, but they've since expanded all over Brazil. Uh, I think they have some locations in the U.S. as well. But the reason why I bring them up is because they've also opened a few locations in Spain and starting with Barcelona. So I had I had met them, uh, one of the founders in Barcelona the previous year, last year, and got to see how they've been expanding uh, with their concept and their um, their approach to, to specialty coffee uh, from Brazil to the world. And so what's interesting about their concept, it is pretty much centered around the idea of coffee to go. So I was talking about to go coffee before um, being a little bit more of a, an American Canadian thing by by nature, by default, um, but of course has, has become popular in different parts of the world. And so 
the coffee is focused on very small, minimal places. And actually they have the Japanese writing for coffee as well. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's a fusion of Brazilian Japanese branding and, uh, you know, approach, I guess, as well in terms of the design specifically. So, you know, if you're, if you are in love with Japanese design, like I am, uh, you will love this, this concept of the coffee. And so what I find is it's very minimal. It's very, um, it's very small. It's very quaint when you walk into the, into the cafes. Uh, of course they have espresso, they have, some of them have uh, filter coffee as well, but they're working with, uh, exclusively Brazilian coffee, or at least that's what I, that's what I noticed in, in, in the cafes that I visited. But what I find interesting again about this Japanese Brazilian connection is that uh, I think it it does exemplify a little bit of the the Brazilian culture, sort of a unique aspect of Brazilian culture, and that is just sort of the the Japanese connection there. So I, I don't know if it's so much uh, relevant or prevalent in Rio de Janeiro, but I do know Sao Paulo has the largest population of Japanese people outside of outside of Japan, basically in a concentrated area, right? So. Um, there's a, there's communities of, of Japanese people who came over generations ago, which is very interesting. And, uh, on the flip side, if you go to Japan, there's also communities of, of, uh, Brazilian people there. So there's a little bit of that give and take, let's say that intercambio, uh, exchange there, um, which is really interesting to me. So it, it, it almost wasn't a surprise to see the coffee, uh, showcased in, in a more of a Japanese manner there. So you could say that maybe that's, um, that's a Brazilian coffee connection uh, that's worth worth noting, especially if you're going to go to to Sao Paulo. But the coffee growing culture, something that I didn't I didn't unfortunately have the chance to experience for myself. I didn't go to any Brazilian coffee farms, but I do know that they are uh, one of the largest producers of coffee. It's a very big country as well. They have some of the biggest coffee farms in the world. So if you get a chance. To visit any of them um, they're very very big um, but a lot of them are producing really really nice coffees as well and obviously have a big influence on on coffee consumption around the world i'm sure every single one of you has has uh, tried brazilian coffee and it's at least in europe it's been a common coffee to to put on espresso or even put into a blend uh, there was a t there was definitely a time where most cafes had a blend of uh, brazil and ethiopia which are to me very two different styles of coffee as a generalization, um, but as a way to kind of balance out and have the the nice body and uh, sort of chocolatey, um, you know, smooth aspects of the Brazilian coffee. As, again, as a generalization, not all of them are like that, but uh, paired with the Ethiopian, which is generally a little bit more floral, uh, bright, citric, um, and to be able to have that a little bit of that balance in an espresso is. Uh, proved to be quite nice and, and trendy for a while. Um, so that's, that's an interesting, uh, Brazilian approach to coffee, you know, big coffee farms. And, uh, and you can see that it's starting to starting to expand in, in the way of specialty coffee and, and cafes, but I'll have to go back and explore more. It's a very, very big country. Um, but next up we, we made our way to Colombia. Actually, I had to go to, uh, had to go. I, uh, I wanted to go, I chose to go to a wedding in Colombia. And so a lot of this trip after, uh, after Canada was, was a centered around that idea. But what was nice is 
we had a few weeks to explore different parts of of Colombia that I had not gone to before, uh, and some which I had gone to, but maybe just didn't uh, didn't get a chance to go uh, go deeper or as deep as I would have liked. So um, Bogota was a was a new new city for me, and um, you know, being a very high elevation, it was uh, took a little bit of adjustment to the the altitude and the the lack of oxygen. It's a bit of a cool city. It's uh, it's a bit chill chilly, which is interesting because. Normally, of course, you think of Colombia as being a very tropical, balmy place, and and a lot of it is. Um, and in this case, Bogota is a, is a little bit more of a, yeah, it, it reminded me of uh, of home in some ways. Aside from the beautiful mountains surrounding it, and of course the uh, the uh, the higher altitude and the the, the air with uh, lower lower air pressure. Um, so Bogota was great, and a lot of really cool specialty coffee shops there. Um, some one that I can note for sure is called Tropicalia, which I enjoyed. Really beautiful space, and they're they're roasting their own coffee. But there was quite a few others that were sourcing uh, local Colombian coffee from specific regions, and so yeah, really great city to to explore. Some some colonial uh, architecture and museums and 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 galleries and things. But yeah, in terms of coffee, um, you know they're not growing coffee there because it's uh, it's a little bit too cold. Uh, you know, there's there's different climatic reasons for why Bogota is not in the region of coffee. But from there, we actually made a, a trip to what was called the Eje Cafetero or the coffee axis, which is kind of um, what's in the middle. It's it's basically in the middle of the country, and it's um, it's an intersection of three mm, coffee growing regions, or sort of yeah, a very ripe. Uh, coffee producing areas of, of Colombia and so uh, you know the Pare Pereira was the was the city to, to fly into there but um, yeah I think it, for a lot of you if you're if you're looking for an intro to coffee tourism and uh, coffee culture in a producing country uh, of course Colombia is a, a great place to visit very accessible um, and I can maybe speak a little bit more about about traveling around Colombia and, and you know some some tips there but I, th I thought it was a very easy country to to adjust to um, um, if you've never been to to Latin America or South America um, and so yeah it was really great to be in the the coffee axis there are so many other regions in Colombia that produce great coffee um, but this one I think is a very good intro if you're interested in visiting a coffee farm and also doing some nice uh, some nice hikes and um, you know just trying a little bit of the the local cuisine and um, no, there's there's a few things to offer there uh, in terms of tourism, but specifically coffee tourism and even a little bit of cacao. So we had the chance to go to a coffee farm. Uh, what we chose specifically was a farm called Finca Buenos Aires uh, Coffee. They had a coffee experience. I think there's a few Finca Buenos Aires. So if you're looking it up, um, I'll leave it in the in the description. But it was a it was a nice nice experience. It was a little bit more for me. I had having been to several different uh, coffee farms over the years and some of which to film on and others just to just to meet well most of them i, I made films even if it was uh, for youtube um but th those were a little bit more remote uh, in this case i think going to think of buenos aires and, and some of the other coffee farm experiences around there are much more designed for bringing people in and showing them Showing them the experience of what it's like to to make coffee uh, on the coffee farm, and so it was designed around the idea of bringing in tourists. So 
that you know you can take it or leave it that you you may be that that might be a really great intro for you uh or maybe you're looking for something a little bit more rustic but um it might not have the infrastructure that you need especially if you're if you're not necessarily working in coffee and you're just you know purely a coffee tourist or coffee lover um you know some of those other places might not be as accessible because um they're not they're not set up for for tourism so that was the nice thing about Eje Cafetero uh, in Salento, was one of the towns and the, and the little regions there. So uh, highly recommend going going there if you're going to Colombia and you want uh, sort of an intro to coffee tourism. I think that's a really good place to start. Um, but you will have it's a it's slightly more uh, set up. Let's say it's a little bit more. I don't want to I don't want to use the word commercial because I feel like that has a maybe a negative con connotation. Um, but it's I would say it's coffee tourism light which is a which is a great place to to experience uh coffee the coffee farm the coffee production for the first time so Eje Cafetero um we traveled a little bit uh around other parts of Colombia as well in fact uh I'm not going to talk too much about them because they, they really have nothing to do with coffee but places that I had wanted to go and now um I'm very glad that I've gotten to see quite a bit of Colombia really influential uh, country and an important country in terms of our global coffee culture you know one of the bigger coffee producing countries and, and where some of the best coffee in the world comes from um, and I think a lot of that has to do with obviously the climate and the growing conditions but also the the effort and the, the uh, intention that they've put into on on even like a bigger level governmental level but also on a micro level in terms of the coffee producers um, and just bringing in different varieties and, and of course, bring, you know, bringing in different styles of processing um, from the very experimental to, uh, m you know, much more traditional. And so there's a little bit of something for everyone in Colombia. But um, one, of the, one of the cities that I would highly recommend going to if you get the chance, and that is, uh, that is Medellin. So Medellin is a beautiful city. It's pretty much the same temperature, same... Uh, weather all year round very not not too hot not too cold very sunny uh it's a little bit higher higher elevation i think it's around 1600 meters above sea level but um but yeah very very comfortable and so what i liked about it specifically in the neighborhood of el poblado and um provenza there's some really beautiful cafes and and uh, coffee culture there so of course, bars and restaurants and everything too, and anything you could uh, you could ask for as a as a tourist who likes who's maybe a foodie and, and into gastronomy and uh, and cocktails and and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, really great specialty coffee. And what's unique about Medellin compared to to Bogota, aside from uh, being a little bit warmer, is that it's surrounded by coffee uh, growing regions. So. Antioquia is uh, sort of the region around Medellin, and there's some beautiful coffee farms uh, to visit there too, um, even as close as in the city itself. And so we didn't visit, visit any on, on this trip, but I do know that if that's something you're interested in, um, you could go and, and try some amazing specialty coffee in a beautiful environment in the city of Medellin, and then um, not too far away, go and find uh, some coffee coffee farms in the in the area. So that's what I love about Medellin. Beautiful city, again, <laughs> great food, uh, really traditional. It's, it has a big impact, I think, on Colombian culture. Uh, and the, the paisa is what you would call the 
that area too, Antiochia, Paisa, uh, and the culture and the food and the people and the accent. Uh, so just a beautiful place and uh, a great coffee culture. And it's, and it's really, it's really growing and it's really evolving. So it's really cool to see, um, again, this kind of specialty coffee culture growing and expanding in uh, producing country of Colombia. So, um, after Colombia, came back to Barcelona in August, and that brings us very close to to current day. We're in mid September here. Uh, I, d- I haven't put out a podcast in a little while, so I wanted to do one, you know, just with you and me, and uh, and talk a little bit about my experience. But but I do want to wrap up with my l- latest trip where I am, as I mentioned, in uh, in Peru, and I'm currently in Lima, but majority of my time here was spent on the road, uh, on the, in the plane and going in, uh, to different coffee regions from the north to the south. And so, um, my commentary and my experience with Peruvian culture in general, Peruvian coffee culture, gastronomy, uh, was really, really, uh, illuminating for me. So first of all, Lima, you know, it's, it's got quite a few specialty coffee shops as well. Maybe not as much, uh, as let's say for example, Medellin or what I, where I live in Barcelona, but there's a there's quite the growing specialty coffee culture as you might expect from a coffee region that uh, has some amazing coffees. So on this trip, one of our main uh, well I can't say it was my main goal, but it was definitely Pills' um, main objective from Coffee Libre is to source out some really nice Peruvian coffees and specifically geishas. So um, I got to try some of his Peruvian geisha when I was in Korea. Really, really nice, really tasty. Um, and so there's been a few producers and farmers who have been planting geisha varieties here in Peru. And um, yeah, it was just really nice to to have that as a little bit of our, our mission and objective is to try to find some new geisha varieties uh, here in Peru. And, you know, there's a, there's quite a bit of difference between the north uh, where we went first near uh, surrounding the city of Hayen um, and then coming down to coming back through Lima and going down to Cusco, which is maybe more of the stereotypical Peru of what you might uh, imagine if someone mentions Peru, you know, beautiful Andean mountains and and Machu Picchu and, uh, you know, very high elevation and and ruins and uh, uh, different (laughs) historical uh, indigenous, very, very rich indigenous culture there. you know, the, the music, the, the food is just an amazing place. Cusco itself is even higher altitude than Bogota. As I mentioned earlier, you know, you have to, you have to be aware of that in case you might uh, have a little bit propensity to getting sick from, from the high altitudes, but uh, Cusco is even higher. So it was a, it was just such a beautiful, amazing city. And then we, we actually drove for hours and hours and hours through the mountains going from you know, elevation, well, Cusco was, I think it's around 3,000, around 3,500 meters. And then going down to where Machu Picchu is, not that far down, but around, you know, 2,000 uh, something. And then after going to Machu Picchu, going on a really long drive over mountains and down into valleys and over mountains and down to the valleys. And that was, I think, around eight and nine hour drive. So that's, that's just an example of what uh, a coffee buyer might go through uh, in order to find some of the best coffees, but not only just the best coffees. I think it's important to to make the example or make the case 
for developing relationships with the coffee producers um, and and finding those people that you do want to partner with year after year uh, if you're going to be a green a green coffee buyer or you know a, a, a roaster or a sourcer um, who's picking up some of the some of the best coffees from around the world so that was really the purpose of this trip is to go and find some new producers that uh, pill wanted to start working with and um, and how you know those those relationships can be developed over years in order to to grow together so I think that's to me, that's much more important than maybe cherry picking, uh, you know, both literally and, and conceptually here in terms of um, finding maybe only the best coffees and going in and taking a few a few bags, maybe uh, 100, 150 kilos or so. But that doesn't always help the coffee farmer, um, you know, on a on a grander scale, because if you're if you're only trying the best and you're jumping from from farmer to farmer, or producer to producer, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to grow and gain momentum with, with one of them. Uh, so anyways, that's a different conversation, different discussion. You might have different thoughts on it. So I'd be happy to hear, hear from you. Um, it's always an ongoing chat, but it was just really cool to, to go and see some new regions and to document it on, uh, on film. Uh, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to see those soon once they're all edited and posted. But, uh, this was, this was interesting. This was interesting for me to kind of dissect or um, revisit, reflect on a lot of the the coffee cultures that that are present around the world. And I really hope that uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to experience them for yourself, or if you've been curious about any of them, and you know, I think there's an interesting um, dichotomy between the traditional coffee culture and this modern specialty coffee culture, which I'm sure many of you are know and love, and um, you know, in in my opinion, and maybe maybe this is more of a romantic view, but I think there are a lot of there's there is a lot of value in both sides, and so um, you know, I don't want you to just write off a traditional way of br making coffee or brewing coffee or growing it um, just because it's not necessarily doesn't meet the standards of specialty coffee and it's not been graded to a specific, uh, you know, grading points, uh, whether it's 88 plus or 90 plus and been roasted in a specific way, you know, there's, there's some nuance and, and, uh, romance, I think to, to a lot of the, the traditional coffee cultures from around the world. And so, yeah, I'm excited, uh, to continue exploring, of course, continue, continue traveling and, um, to hopefully have you along the way, whether it's, uh, whether it's online through this podcast, through the social media or maybe even in person. So if, uh, if I'm ever in your town, you notice um, the, the, my, my journeys, which I'm always posting on Instagram, feel free to, to reach out and, and maybe, maybe there's a coffee connection waiting there. But in the meantime, I'll be, I'll be waiting for coffee tourism on Google Alerts. Um, I'll be waiting for your messages. If you have any comments or feedback, you can always hit me up on, on Instagram. Unfortunately, the, the podcast, uh, platform is not not the best for receiving sort of these uh these reciprocal thoughts but you know hit me up on on uh, instagram or x uh as formerly known as twitter brody Vissers. so hope to see you there and before you take off you know it would really appreciate you know a rating on this podcast give us some stars um follow along click that follow button and yeah we can keep keep going together keep traveling around the world for coffee and exploring the cultures 
along the way. Uh, great to have you here and I will see you out there. Grab a coffee and sip away.